Hello everyone and welcome to the episode 7 of our podcast series Venture Journey. Today we all face unprecedented time and venture ecosystem goes to a turmoil. To discuss the impact of COVID-19 on Canadian early stage founders, we have with us Alex Norman. Alex is well known in the Canadian startup ecosystem. He is a tech entrepreneur and a community builder. Currently, he is the head of Canada for AngelList and managing director for Tech Toronto. Alex, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me, Abby. Alex, Winston Churchill once said, "Never let a good crisis go to waste." Do you believe a tech entrepreneurs are converting this crisis into an opportunity? Or to rephrase, how are early stage founders adapting to the current pandemic? And is the pandemic driving innovation? Or is it driving fear? So, look, you have to break down the tech ecosystem into two types of startups. Ones that existed pre-COVID and ones that maybe formed over the last two months. So as a pandemic hit, if you were an existing company, uh, your plans didn't make sense anymore. You had to then, first of all, the first step was to understand how the pandemic was going to affect you and make plans to adjust that. In most cases, that's the first step was to ensure survival long enough to adjust. So the first month or two, lots of companies were reassessing everything about their business and were in a bit more survival mode. Now that they're seeing how stuff are emerging, some are being very innovative. It could be um, serving new customers. It could be completely changing their business model. And then there's a subset of those ones that are just trying to survive until this comes out. So for example, if you're serving the travel industry, there's still a significant amount of um, uncertainty right now. And the key thing is to survive long enough to figure out where to double down and where to innovate. Now, if you didn't have a company before and you're thinking of one, or and maybe you got laid off, or maybe you have more time on your hands right now, there's been a lot of innovation, new companies starting out. So just if you just have to look at video chat, video conferences, I think the number of companies trying to do something to enable face-to-face communication via the internet has exponentially grown in the last two months. And all these people are trying new things and new ways to interact using new technologies. If you take the big high-level pictures, the first couple months were predominantly about survival and assessing the situation. And now, for the majority of companies, they are focused on innovating and be business innovation or technology innovation because that's what that's what entrepreneurs and companies do to grow. But what about the organizations or startups which were about to raise money or which were still in pre-fundraise? What happened to what happens to those startups then? If you're pre like. If, if you're pre-money, and even if you existed before and you need to raise money right now, you need to plan. It, it's going to be harder in a lower valuation than it was before. And I think as a founder or a founding team, you have to think about what you have to do to de-risk this business. And it depends on who you're serving and where you're at. So if you're, su- if you're serving, if, you're pl- if your plan was to serve commercial property, it's going to be very hard to raise money just because there's so much uncertainty. If it's travel, if it's events, those industries are very tough. The flip side is if you, if you have something that can make a big difference in the health system, um, and it's, and it's, a, it's it seems like it, it's a part of the health system that has the capacity to adapt to right now, you're probably going to find an ability to get funding. So if you take a step back, you know, again, looking at the bigger picture, if you're pre-product market fit, pre-funding, it, your approach really depends on this uncertainty in your market, the ability for your market to move, and then based on those, your plans will differ. So low-level low, 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 low uncertainty, you've got customers that can pay now, you can raise money like you used to. 
a high level of uncertainty and your customers are just not there right now, you can't raise money unless you have traction and you can prove it and the burden's much higher. So it's not one size fits all. It, it's understanding the dynamics and, and, the, and basically the market you're operating in. If I have to ask you what tips do you have for the founders, especially in seed and pre-seed stage? Should they focus their energy on specific access like product market fit or improving their product or maybe experimenting? Where well, should the focus be? Yeah. I think that's a false trade-off. If you're pre-product market fit, you should always be focused on getting a product market fit. Um, so that does include experimentation. That includes product improvement. Um, if you're post-product market fit, you should be doing optimizing how you can get more customers and, and more paying customers and retention. So pre-product market fit, the one and only thing that, that matters right now is proving that you have product market fit. And, and, and then post-product market fit is understanding if it's going to stay. Because as trends have changed, maybe you all of a sudden you have product market fit and it might disappear in six months when things change again. If you, if you may have had product market fit and now it may have disappeared. So it's, it's, so it's all about ensuring you get to product market fit and it stays. And everything else serves to that. So some people, you don't want to over-engineer product right now. You want to make sure you can prove it, that you have product market fit. Okay, so if I have to ask you, how has COVID impacted the angel investment? Has angel investment gone up? It's remained the same, or it it is just plummeted? It's not clear. I think March first to like end of April, it plummeted uh, for, for several reasons. Uh, angel investors, in particular, have capital from all different sources, and, and you had a it's like every asset class was correlated, and they saw their wealth go down. It may see their cash flow go down and a huge amount of uncertainty. So that just that freezes up mentally deploying more capital when you're, you feel poorer. Second thing is if you have a portfolio company you're involved with, you spent most of March and April helping that portfolio company readjust, going back to measuring that survival mode, help them understand what survival mode was. Um, now you go to May, you're starting to see deals get done now. But expectations have adjusted on both sides. So angel investors are probably staying closer to what they know well. They're probably saying, hey, valuations have to be less and you have to raise more because we want you to get over this risky period. So it, it, so you have a double line as a founder. They're saying, hey, before something may be worth $5 million, now worth $3 million. Before, instead of raising seven fifty, dollars you're asked to raise $1 So you're taking significantly more dilution. The flip side is now you have founders who... The comparable prices and what the market was saying is still data mainly from February because even the deals that closed in March were based on February prices. So they're looking at it and going, well, all my, all my peers got a $5 million valuation. You're asking me to take three. That's a, you know, that's a significant cut. Um, you know, that's what, 40% cut. Why should I take that? So even when there's a possibility to do deals, the market, the supply and demand of money and you know, capital and, and equity is not there. It's causing some some uh, deals take longer to put together and some angels aren't back in the market because again, they don't have the mental or financial capacity, capacity that they had before. Um, so it's, it is tougher out there from an angel perspective. I don't know how much it's not, I think it's plummeted, it's recovered significantly and I think it'll continue to recover, but it's not as easy as before. And uh, if we talk about the deal, deal flows, has the deal flows getting impacted? So, Again, I'll speak from my perspective, yeah. um, and then I'll see from what I said. Market in March and early April, 
deal flow dried up. Um, I think most of most founders realized this was not the time to raise money unless they absolutely had to. Um, so I still had deal flow coming to me personally, but I was probably down 50 to 60%. Now I feel it's up to 95, 100% of normal, if not accelerating, because you have a bit of pent up demand. Um, I think the market had, if you look at the later, like the market beyond angels, like let's say seed rounds and early stage rounds, my feeling is deal flow was different during that period. A lot of companies that closed rounds in the past six months went back to the market and said, hey, we raised in November, we raised $2 million at $8 million pre, $10 million pre. You know what? We've got great progress, but we're willing to take another half million at the same price. So instead of seeing a lot of net new deals, you're seeing a lot of deals that were old deals that reopened. And so there's a lot of, and it hasn't been talked about, but I saw a lot of deals in March and April, which were basically previous rounds reopened to take more money. Okay. And if we talk about the other players in the ecosystem, so let's come to accelerators and incubators. Have they, for an example of incubator is 111, like they, they just closed down. Has, have any other incubators, they changed the strategy and at the same time, accelerators, have they changed any strategy given the situation? Well, a lot of the value of an accelerator and incubator is the in-person transaction. Exactly. Uh, right. And, and relationships. It's the mentor days. It's the demo days. It's meeting other founders. So. They've had to change because they can't do that anymore. Um, so there's been changes along a few lines. One is let's go to all virtual, right? Um, you know, anything from the mentorship to the meetings to the demo days. Second thing has been to, to delay uh, programs. So I can think of a couple of programs in Toronto that said we're not going to do a program this year. We're going to post it up to January. I've seen some that said, okay, we're going to go with the program, but we're going to delay our demo day for a couple of months, hoping to have demo days in person. Um, and I think some of the innovative ones have actually leveraged us to do something they couldn't do before. Like, you know, before it was all about proximity and getting people in that city to come, they're, they're reaching out to mentors or advisors that wouldn't be able to make the trip and letting them participate as other mentors, like, so, uh, mentors by getting them to do a Zoom call. Um, I think there's also been the best ones have also leaned in and doubled down on the ability to help companies that are graduating raise money. Because going back to where money's not as easily available, lots of investors and these were angel investors. So I know one right now, they couldn't do their normal demo day, but they have a list of 4,500 investors and they're pro they sent a mass email to those, those investors, but they're proactively helping specific companies reach out to specific investors where they think there should be a fit historically. So making sure that they protect the companies and help them run, get, get through this. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's, it's not a drastic change. And I, I, I think, you know, you might see a few accelerators or incubators, depending on their funding models, not make it through this, just like some startups, because if you're funded year to year and you're not graduating on this year and What's the incentive for people to throw money at it? Because you haven't know, been able to adapt. That's true. And specifically for incubators, like providing the real estate, the office space was one of the key aspects. And because of COVID, now the office, the offices won't be so crowded, the, the, and there won't be so many people, so network would be limited. Do you think, like, 
can incubators survive even if they change the strategy because one of the key aspects for them was providing the space? I think they can because I think most incubators also don't have the whole team there, like the entire teams there before, right? If you're, depends on how early you are, but if it's a matter of density, you just have less density and fewer people. And I think what's, but the incubators accelerators, I think historically if you look, there's been, there's always turnover and the best ones survive and the best ones that have the brand names, the ones that add value, the ones that have a clear value proposition, there's no reason for them to disappear. They are, they're needed in the ecosystem. And if you actually go back to angel busting, if it doesn't get to high, as a high level as it was before, the incubators accelerators actually have more potential companies and they might have, you know, more mature companies or get accepted, which might increase the demand from interest from investors. Um, and not all incubators have their real estate. Some, some of them would be using third party real estate anyway. So it's not like they have a fixed cost they have to cover. Now we have spoken about the founders, other, other, other elements in the ecosystem. Let's talk about institutional investors. How have VCs reacted to this situation? Are they risk averse or they're still pumping money? Specifically, if we say seed versus series A. So I would look at it differently. I would look at where a fund was in their life cycle. So a fund that's halfway through their life cycle has a lot of active portfolio companies. And just like angels or any other investor, they probably spent March and April helping and triaging those, their current portfolio. When everyone needs attention, you give attention to your current companies. That's, that's your first priority is to serve those founders and teams. So March and April was predominantly focused on that, and they were going through probably a triage thing. These companies are perfect. They really need no help. These companies are doing well, probably need some capital and need some attention. These companies, they're dead. We'll help them. We'll transition them out. Um, then they've come back to market. Those, those, so these are ones that are like we're halfway through fund life cycle. And they're also at that March and April, what they're also trying to figure out is how is fundamentally all the verticals they're serving or investing in has changed. And so the, so I think was if you're halfway through a fund, you're probably less quickly to deploy because there's certain uncertainty you don't want to invest against. And it's also, you're used to meeting people in person. Um, then let's go to someone that just closed a new fund in January or February. I've talked to quite a few of those. Those people are actually eager to deploy. And the bigger problem is that deal flow has dried up a bit because founders were not there raising. But they feel like they might be able a competitive advantage because they can move quickly. They have money to move. So uh, if something meets their criteria, I think they'll move faster than they were doing before. Uh, the, the, the big question, the two big questions for any fund though is, what sector are you serving and how much uncertainty is there? And, and, and it's, it may come down to a subsector because if you're serving food, if you're doing something like food delivery, if you're serving food logistics, that looks a little more interesting and appetizing than before. If you're serving um, restaurants and your businesses from in like people like you know, point of sales or the actual physical restaurant, you're not, no one's investing in that right now or very few people are. Um, the second thing is the way an A round or later stage investor usually met is they met the team, they met the person they wanted to walk, they wanted to walk the halls. That is difficult. Uh, just did a founders of funding episode this afternoon where the founder said the reason they invested, they were talking about B round, the reason they chose this VC was if this company was based in Boise, Idaho, and the, fa- the whole partnership of this VC flew down to meet them and walked the hall. So 
hey, you can't build that rapport with the founder. And second of all, this, and, and as VC said, even now, like I, I'm used to meeting people. It's hard for me to write a check. So I'm, if I'm writing a check, it's predominantly to someone I had an ongoing relationship or I can go, I have lots of people comment where I can go do a bunch of um, due diligence on. So if you're a net new person, it's much harder for me to write a check to you because I don't get to spend the time with you. Um, so overall, it's slower pace than before, but it, but there are people writing checks faster than before. So are VCs adopting this change? Because no one knows how long it will take. It might even stretch. So are VCs still, are they, they still comfortable? Yes, they have to be. If your business your business is to provide a return for your partners and, is, and you do that by serving founders. So they, they can't sit, if this goes for two years, you can't sit on money for two years. They, they actually have pressure to employ. So they will adjust and they'll find a way. The worst case scenario, if you get really pessimistic, is the money gets recycled a bunch of second-time founders or early-stage people. So they they over rely on experience much more than before because they want to take they don't want to take the risk. Yeah. So if I have to ask you, what are the emerging trend are you witnessing? So you did mention a couple of trends on conference calls or food tech yeah. deliveries. What other trends are you noticing right now in the venture system? So I think. There's there's the ones that are accelerating and then there's the ones that are new. So accelerating is stuff, what I call employee employee engagement tools. So tools that allow a distributed remote team to better collaborate or to better feel like build a culture. Those are seeing huge uptake much faster than before. Um, the next category is there's a lot of interest in health tech before than before because. You've seen lots of governments change long-standing rules and regulations that prevented innovation, and lots of people are betting that those rules will permanently change. Uh, you know, then the next, the next one, which is net new, is focus on uh, basically video-based entertainment or conferencing. So you, you've got the verticalization of Zoom. There's a bunch of niche platforms out there to help you with community events or sales calls. Um, and I think you're seeing a lot more consumer consumer apps emerge because people have had free time and looking for entertainment. And you, in the last two years, a big worry was like no consumer downloads a new app. Like the average person, the average person was adding zero new apps to their platform, or median person was adding zero new apps to their phone a month. That's changed. So like, I don't think Clubhouse could have emerged six months ago. Yeah. So so I think you're seeing so at a high level. Uh, Enterprise SaaS is speeding up if it serves the work from home crowd. Health is is, is being invigorated, and, and bio as well. Uh, video video conversation enabling tools is emerging, and and consumer apps are having a resurgence. And and again, I I wouldn't be surprised if you see the other the other category which existed that's also had a huge spike is fitness and health. So like the Peloton and, and all the competitive space, like this company I know, Fight Camp, uh, usually January is a great month because people are worried about getting back in shape. February is good, but by March, you have a bit of seasonality. And just, you know, from what I'm hearing, it's it, they're just killing it um, because people are staying at home and need to work out. And yeah, that's true. It, it would be interesting to see which space keeps emerging. And like, for example, even the gaming, which I've been keeping a close track, the gaming industry has boomed across now. Nintendo making most of the profit from its one game. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, my kids, the, actually, the, I think the company that may be benefiting the most that no one talks about 
is Roblox. I have a 10 year old and a five year old. Yeah. They're on Roblox all the time. I feel like a bad parent saying that, but they're probably on there for at least four hours a day. And, I'll, and they have microtransactions. And my kids every morning ask me to buy more Robux. I don't do it. Okay. <laughs> but it was, you know, again, if you have one or 2% go to becoming well status, they're, they're just, they're just killing it. Yeah. So if I, if you have to come to the recovery phase now, what, what, what do you think? Will it be V shape, U shape or L shape? And do you think this recovery would be backed by government interventions or it would be totally driven by innovation? If I, if I had a good answer for this, like, I'd be a good hedge fund manager. Um, <laughs> if, 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 if I were to take a guess, it's actually going to be W-shaped. Okay. I think, I think we're going to start, you know, recovery will look fast and then government's going to have to cut off its subsidies or we're going to have a second, you know, second uh, hit of the pandemic and it will take a step back and then, and then eventually we'll recover. I also, and I think the W will be a nice long W, so I don't think it's going to be quick. And I also think you have headwinds. You have head, three headwinds coming to any recovery. One is right now the government, governments around the world are pumping so much money and they have to stop that. And then eventually it's a tax. I don't think that's going to happen in the next three years, but I'm, I'm expecting all tax rates to go up significantly in the next four or five years. So that's the first headwind. second headwind is you have U.S. elections in the, in, in the fall. And I think these U.S. elections, if are just going to be messy um, and will create a bunch of headwind. And the third thing which can really compound stuff is you have the pandemic resurge around the U.S. elections and you have bad voter turnout. We're in for a messy uh, first quarter next year. So I think there's enough stuff that will you'll see recovery as people go out and shop because, like, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to go to a restaurant soon and just have a night out without my kids and there will be a burst in spending, but I think it's going to be fragile. True. Okay, Alex, it was a it was a pleasure having you and we, we really I think the audience have got really great insights from you. Starting from the trend to how VCs are thinking, how angel investment is going, what founders should do, and at the end how recovery. We hope I, I hope I'm an optimistic, I hope it should be a V shaped recovery. But I hope so too. <laughs> but like you know so as someone that invests in startups, I'm by nature optimistic, but I do have a counterpoint where I also prepared for the downside. So that optimism does not is not blind. I, I we will come out of this, we'll be stronger. It just might take longer than we want. That's true. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you for your time. It was great. a pleasure. My the pleasure is all mine. Have a great day and we'll uh, we'll speak soon I hope. With this, I'll conclude the episode seven of podcast series Venture Chenny. Stay tuned for further updates.